Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Today's guest is Liz Coley, author of the psychological thriller Pretty Girl 13, released by HarperCollins, with foreign translations in French, Spanish, German, Portuguese, Swedish, Norwegian, Russian, Czech, Slovakian, and Chinese. Liz's short fiction has also appeared in Cosmos magazine and several speculative fiction anthologies. Liz joined me to talk about using short stories as a stepping stone to publishing a novel and how submitting to genre-centric anthologies can offer creative opportunities. In Trading Faces by Julia DeVillers and Jennifer Roy, identical twin sisters Emma, the smart one, and Peyton, the popular one, start a brand new school and secretly switch places. They find out playing a new role in life can be fun, and disastrous. What does it mean to be true to yourself and find your own identity? You've published in multiple ways across multiple platforms. You have shorts and magazines, as well as novels, both traditionally and self-published. So did you begin with shorts and magazines as a way to exhibit your writing credentials to agents once you're acquiring novels? This is an interesting question. A few days ago, I took one of those personality tests, which archetypal character are you? Mm -hmm. And it turned out that I was the explorer. I didn't feel like my answers were leading to that, but as I thought about it, it actually made a lot of sense in terms of just my life path in general, and then also my publishing path. So I really started out with an interest in science fiction, and I started attending a writing conference, an annual writing conference up in Columbus called Context, which is not one of those cons where you dress up. It's one of those cons specifically devoted to meeting writers and learning about the craft of writing Mm -hmm. speculative fiction and fantasy. Through that and just through general experience, I knew that the way that you entered the science fiction publishing world was via short stories. So the teachers of this workshop were Tobias Bakel and Charlie Finley and Paul Melko, and they were great role models. They had all started out by publishing short stories, and then they had gotten their novel deals. In fact, at that point, all of them were had, I think, published one novel and were working on getting a deal for a second one. And I felt like that was the way to go. So I started the process of writing short science fiction stories. And the markets for those were three major magazines and a newly opening market, which was anthologies, print-on-demand anthologies. So I started both to hone my craft, to learn about the sci-fi publishing business, and yes, to get writing credentials. Because in that all-important query letter, It helps if you have a biography that says, I have had such and such published in this location. So that was definitely part of the plan as well. So you mentioned print-on-demand anthologies. Do you think that market still exists? It does. So if you're writing in speculative fiction, there's a website called Rollin, R-A-L-A-N, dot com, And it lists all of the calls for submissions. Some anthologies are by request only, and then others are open to submissions. And it's a great way for an unknown person 
to get started. Now, you're not going to get any money out of it. You may get one or two free copies of the anthology for your trouble. And who is usually putting together those anthologies? People who love reading and writing, often the editors of those anthologies also had a story in the anthology, so it was their way of trying to get their work out there. The first one I got involved with was actually published by a Canadian artist, and he had done paintings of the sort of glory days of science fiction, like those, those lurid covers. He solicited authors to write stories that were inspired by his cover art, and then That's he put cool. those together in an anthology. That was my first publishing credit. That was very fun. That's neat. I like that idea. It's kind of working backwards from what we think of because we we produce a novel and then the art department covers it. Exactly. And our payment for doing that was the actual original painting of our cover, our our imaginary cover for our story. That's pretty neat. I like that. That's very fun. So when it comes to those shorts and submitting to magazines, did you find that publishing shorts was just as difficult, if not more so, than trying to get an agent or trying to publish a novel? It was easier in one way. It was harder in another. The way that it's harder is that you really could only do single submissions. You could send a story to only one magazine at a time and then wait six weeks to six months to hear back. So in one sense, you had to have a lot of inventory so that you could be querying lots of different places with different pieces and and sort of put them on a rotation until you, you got a hit. When you're going out for an agent, you can send your material to as many people simultaneously as you'd like until the point where people are reading a full manuscript or asking for an exclusive look at something. Mm -hmm. But I did find it easier to break into the short story market than to get an agent, yes. And how many shorts did you have published? Six publications of short stories, two in magazine, Cosmos with an S magazine, which is an Australian science magazine, which is an excellent place. And then four in these print-on-demand type of anthologies. And then I've also self-published three more short stories that are more young adult short stories on Amazon and Kindle. That is fascinating to me because I have been trying to place shorts not in genre fiction but in like literary mags and it's so competitive it is ridiculously difficult i've had to relive the entire rejection process <laughs> they tend to get 2000 submissions per one that they choose yeah it's a tough market yeah. but there were more open markets and you didn't have to go through a middleman Right, of course. Well, and I've been enjoying it just because I don't write shorts naturally. And I do think short stories are harder to write than a novel. I once heard it said that a short story is about the most important event in the main character's life, and a novel is the most important time period in the main Mm. character's life. Since I tend to write in scene, I think that shorts are more my natural length for some reason, get in, get out, tell your story. Mm -hmm. I've struggled placing my shorts, but I'm okay with that because I know that they're not up to par yet. I find short stories more difficult because my shorts are flash fiction. They're micro fiction. I write that tiny scene and Mm -hmm. I love it to be open-ended. I don't know that that's what lit mags are always looking for. There was an interesting philosophy of short stories uh, that was expressed by the teachers of this writing workshop that was completely opposite. So when the attendees asked Tobias Bakel and Charlie Finley how many 
of the stories that you've written have you published? Charlie said, all of them, because I have written 23 and I have polished those 23 until someone was willing to publish them. Mm. And Tobias said, oh, yes, I've published 23, but I've written about 150. So they had a very different approach. Tobias said, if it's not working, it's not working. Mm -hmm. And Charlie said, I'm going to make it work. My approach would be much like writing a novel and trying to find the editor that it fits with. I think shorts are very much that same arena. And also when you're trying to place a short, you have to find a magazine that it works for because every lit mag or genre mag has its own feel and voice. And you really have to actually read issue after issue of those magazines in order to decide which of your shorts is going to fit that or have the best shot at getting accepted. Yeah, I agree. I think it's an interesting way to branch out and explore. Do you recommend going that route for authors? Should they attempt placing some shorts first as a way of getting your feet wet? Maybe experience rejection on a smaller scale rather than write that 65,000 word novel? Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. If somebody has a story that's small, you often hear that the first thing that I wrote was 150,000 words. To have spent a year, two years, three years of your life writing the high fantasy novel of your dreams only to find out that you haven't really learned how to write yet can be really heartbreaking. So it's a little bit easier to spend, say, a month on a story or two weeks on a story and then send it out because you know you can write another one. It's much harder to say, oh, that 150,000-word opus didn't sell. I'm going to start another one. Right, exactly. I think that's a great point. The other thing I want to ask you about submitting, a lot of lit mags, and I don't know about genre magazines because I haven't explored that avenue yet, but a lot of smaller presses and lit mags have started to charge reading fees if you want to send your stuff in or if you're applying for a contest of course there is a submission fee because when you win you get money and it is an amalgamation of the submission fees and I've seen different arguments for whether or not you should send in to magazines that do charge a reading fee some say yes some say no what do you think of that? The only things I have ever sent a reading fee to were contests, where that was the only way to get access. I don't believe that I would submit to something that required a reading fee unless it was so cool that I couldn't resist. So, for instance, I submitted a 10-minute play to a festival in Wales that had a five-pound submission fee. And I was totally willing to gamble five pounds in order to just show this stuff to the people who were reading for this festival in Wales. Well, let's talk about that play. You've written one act. So was there a particular reason you chose to explore that? I was sort of feeling the, the blues that we writers get from time to time when the balance of rejection is higher than the balance of acceptance. And also, I was writing a novel that kept wanting to turn itself into a play. I could picture the staging exactly. It was coming to me all in dialogue. And I got to say, dialogue and character are probably my strongest suits as a writer, much more so than setting an exposition and that sort of thing. So I kind of have a natural fit with 
the things you need to do for playwriting. And so I took a playwriting master class at the University of Cincinnati. It was a week-long class, and since I live in Cincinnati, I didn't have to arrange for housing. I could just drive there. But it was basically immersion from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. The other thing that was incredibly cool is that they gave us a cadre of 15 acting students who are really smart people to read our work as we produced it. So you could write a 10-minute play in the morning and hear it read in the evening Mm -hmm. and see how much more there was in your words than you thought there was or see where it went astray and immediately get an audience reaction and feedback. And that's not the kind of thing that you can get easily with novel and prose writing. And again, I found that I had this real affinity for the short length, that you could write a 10-page dialogue, which works out to 10 minutes. One page equals one minute. I could tell these little stories. So I enjoyed doing that. And again, it was something where you could spend a few hours, maybe three hours, putting out the first draft of an entire story. I decided after I'd done this, well, I'm going to start submitting this to 10-Minute Play Festival. Again, I found an online site that lists all of the submission calls with their due dates and their requirements and just started sending my work out for 10-Minute Festivals. Is there any kind of monetary return for that? I started it as a need for validation. In a way, it's really freeing because there really isn't much of an expectation for getting any kind of payment. And that, in a way, was freeing. I didn't have to think, what if I hit the New York Times list? What if someone optioned me for a movie? None of those kind of silly burdens were on this. I was just writing for the love of writing and to have a room full of people hear my little stories. Mm -hmm. And the avenues for that, again, as I said, are these 10-minute play festivals. So one of my stories is going to be debuting in San Diego in the North Park Playwright Festival next month, which is really fun. So I'm going to San Diego, which is where I'm from. It gives me a great excuse to go home and see one of my little plays performed in front of people, fully staged. The feedback to my heart and my artistic Mm -hmm. heart from that is just going to be immeasurable. The theater is a world that's based on relations with people. So as I get to know directors and theaters, then that opens doors for my work being performed. You really don't start to make money as a playwright until you've been out there long enough that either you win a major contest or somebody commissions you to write a play for their theater. That's sort of when people's careers start, when they start being commissioned. So when it comes to writing plays or one acts, it's a lot like the publishing industry where networking, once you're in, networking and knowing people helps. Yes, very much so. When it comes to opening any kind of doors for you, right now it's opening up creative doors. It's opening up creative doors. And another one of my pieces is being used in the classroom in San Diego for some acting students. They said, this is a really nice relationship story. We want to use it for scene study. Do we have your permission to do that? And I said, yes, you know, I'm not going to charge for that. I'm not going to charge royalties because people are being exposed to my name and my work. And I just take it on faith that that will lead to something else. There's a return there. It's certainly a psychic return, if nothing else. Yeah, I agree. You said that you knew it was a play because it was so dialogue heavy. I think that's really interesting because I have written one, one act in my life. The only thing I know about writing plays is from being in them. 
So I just threw together something. I think I did this. I think I wrote a one act because the story I had in my head was almost entirely dialogue. When I went to write the story, there was no text. It was all speech. So I have a friend in uh, publishing who used to write for Xena, Warrior Princess. Mm -hmm. And I sent him what I had and I was like, hey, tell me, is this a play or should I just stick to what I know and make this a short story? And he was like, no, this is good. And I was like, that's cool. I wrote a one act. I've never done anything with it. It's in an anthology from a little indie about the end of the world. Mm -hmm. But I had a lot of fun doing it and it was very freeing. As you're saying, I could see it. And I think it's interesting that that's how you knew it was a play and not a short story. Were there any other indicators for you that you were trying to force it into the wrong form? Well, I would go on for pages without having anything other than the the dialogue mentioned. So that was Mm -hmm. one thing. But also it was that I had such an incredibly strong visual for what it would look like on a stage. And the interesting thing is I'm sort of still developing it in two different directions because I got some feedback on the novel version that said, because we're not enough in the main character's head, we're not identifying with him and sympathizing with him. So we need a way to figure out how to do that. So I realized this is an ensemble piece as a play. The cast is way too huge for anything other than a high school or college class. It's not the kind of thing that would ever be on a main stage. But I'm also continuing to try to develop the novel form because I really loved some of the other language that I had put in there that wasn't in the dialogue. And so I started interweaving another character story in intermittent chapters, and that started turning it more into a novel. But they would turn out to be very different pieces, which I think is good. I think when a stage adaptation or movie adaptation is word for word, it's not right. It's just not right. No, it doesn't work, that's for sure. Up next, how Liz's degree in molecular biology helps boost the science in her science fiction, as well as slip modern science into her contemporary psychological thriller. Riley didn't mean to kiss her sister's boyfriend. At least, not the first time. But it doesn't matter, because her sister caught them together, ran away upset, and never came home. As evidence mounts that something terrible has happened, Riley can't bring herself to admit what she's done, that she's the reason her sister ran away. How do you face the guilt of wishing a person gone when they actually disappear? Avoid the Size of the World, a YA novel by Rachel Alpine, is available now through Simon Pulse. Okay, so you have a degree from Yale, Mm -hmm. but it's not in writing. Talk about your educational background. And how it has informed your fiction. My degree is in the subject of molecular biophysics and biochemistry, Mm -hmm. which meant a lot of biochemistry, basically. Not so much biophysics. I was always a science geek. I also liked math, too. But particularly science and space science. And I've just always been interested in the way the universe works, the way things work. In that sense, I'm an explorer. I like to find out what other people have learned about the world. I'm not someone who stands in a laboratory and figures it out myself. I tried that route, but that wasn't going to be the right route for me. I'm much more of a consumer than a producer of scientific knowledge. But the way it informs my work is in the subjects I'm interested in and also in the kind of research I do. So for instance, in my book, The Captain's Kid, which was my most recent self-publication, 
It's about a, a teenage boy who goes to, into outer space finally after being left behind on all of these trips. His dad's the captain of a starship. Well, I wrote it because I wanted my two boys when they were younger to have kind of entry-level science fiction to read, and there really wasn't any at the time other than this, The City of Ember. That was pretty much the only thing at that grade level. So I started writing this story, but I thought, I want this to kind of introduce kids to real science and real possibilities for the future. So I did research on things like the space elevator. I'm on the NASA website learning all about the materials and structure of what a space elevator would be. And I included that in the story. And then what it would be like to live on the moon and what the habitats would need to consist of and look like. And I included that in the story. The only hand-waving was on how does a faster-than-light drive work. But I came up with a system for that as well. So I try to make the science at least feasible and something that would be educational. And sort of in the same vein when I wrote Tormatics Unleashed, it's about a mysterious new flu that's a crossover between the bird flu and the dog flu. And I did a lot of virology research. I was looking at genetic sequences and trying to figure out how this could work. And there's a very user-friendly explanation about how pandemic flus get started in the text so that, you know, your teenage girl who's reading this story because it's a fun romp adventure with a little bit of romance thrown in is also going to learn about how pandemics work. You have a, is it a master's? A bachelor's. Yeah, my master's is in business. So you have a bachelor's in molecular, molecular biology, biology yeah. and a master's in business. Yep. And you're a novelist. I love that. <laughs> you know, I'm an explorer. <laughs> and I worked yeah, in hospital definitely. administration. So that kind of combined the science and the business. Absolutely. No, I think that's fantastic because so many creatives don't have that background. And I know a lot of fans of science fiction who read science fiction and ask, where's the science? I am a very picky reader when it comes to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have friends that are really hardcore science fiction readers that are very critical of what claims to be science fiction that, according to them, is not. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. It all really kind of culminated in Pretty Girl 13, which I call stealth science fiction because mm -hmm. I was interested in the question of if you had a choice about whether to remember or forget the worst things that had ever happened to you, what would you choose? And I looked at that from two different angles. One was from the condition of multiple personalities, which is a defense mechanism in the brain to sequester traumatic things that have happened into different segments of your memory. It's, it's an absolutely miraculous defense mechanism that humans have. And then the other was looking at the work that's going on in neurobiology right now with manipulating, literally manipulating memory in the brain right now of mammals, turning neurons on and off, making that another choice for this character. If you could literally wipe out certain memories by knowing exactly where they were located, would that be a good idea or a bad idea? You're right. It is stealth sci-fi. Pretty Girl 13 is because there's a lot of science in there. Mm -hmm. But it's also definitely a psychological thriller in a lot of ways. So actually talk a little bit more about Pretty Girl 13 and where it came from. 
So I had for a long time been fascinated with the idea of multiple personalities ever since I saw and read Sybil when I was a teenager. Down the road, I discovered that a person that I knew was actually a recovered multiple personality. Knowing the kind of trauma that goes into creating this defense mechanism, A, I was in awe of this person for having pulled it all together, but B, I was also a little scared to try to talk about it. And I thought one day I'm going to write a book where the main character has multiple personalities. And at that point, I will talk to this friend of mine and use her as a sounding board for what I'm trying to do with the story. But I didn't know what the story would be. I just knew that I had this main character. And then, as I said, I'd been reading this neurobiology research about manipulating neurons and turning them on and off, literally, using light signals. And this was being done in the laboratory in 2006. Uh, it's called optogenetics. Now it's like such a hot technique in neurobiology. They're going to be starting to use it for epilepsy and Parkinson's and various other things, but it wasn't being applied to trauma at that point. But there was also a lot of concern a few years down the road. What do we do with all these servicemen returning with terrible trauma? How do we treat trauma? Do we try to manipulate memory or do we try to have people get past those memories or do we erase those memories? So there were all these questions that sort of came together. And then one day I just had this inspiration moment where I saw the title of a book cover in my mind's eye and it said PG-13. And I thought, what is that? What is this book? I said, oh, that's Pretty Girl 13. What is Pretty Girl 13? Oh my gosh, that sounds like the kind of name that somebody would give one of their alternate personalities. And then the whole thing just exploded in my head, and I, I knew that this was the book I was going to write. I just had to figure out exactly what the story was going to be, but I knew it would be about a girl with multiple personalities who had the choice about whether to remember or forget. One of the things I've really appreciated, actually, has been getting letters from people or just even meeting them, people who've read Pretty Girl 13 and who have dissociative identity disorder who've said, I really appreciate the way you've portrayed it. When you go out on a limb and you take somebody else's thing and you write about it, you have this huge responsibility to do it well. There's a lot of validation in that, I think. It was. So Pretty Girl 13 has been translated into how many different languages? Quite a few, right? 12 additional languages and the Queen's English. <laughs> There's a British edition the as Queen's well, English. where they spell color with a U. Yes. <laughs> 12 different foreign languages. That's pretty awesome. It's so cool. And it's so magical because unlike your United States sales, where you feel like there's something that you owe to your book, that it's your responsibility to get out there and make sure that people know about it and that it sells. If you've got a foreign book, it all happens behind your back. You don't have any responsibility for making it a success or a failure, which is also very liberating. Well, your agent convinces a foreign agent to represent it to foreign editors. The foreign editors buy it for their publishing house. They arrange for their own translation. I know people say, did you have to translate it yourself? No. <laughs> publishing houses have expert translators who do that. They decide whether to put on new cover art or use the original cover art. They decide whether to use the original title or retitle it in something that is more appropriate to their market. And so often the first time you know what your new cover and title are is when somebody mails you a copy from your foreign publishing house and you go, wow, this is cool. <laughs> it is so much fun when you get your foreign language edition, but it can be 
pretty late in the game. Like it's usually it's already been released and sometimes you don't even know it was released right. unless someone happens to tag you in an Instagram post or something. And you're just like, Oh look, there's my Romanian edition. Exactly. That's how I saw my Norwegian edition was in an Instagram post. Yep. <laughs> you're so divorced from it. Like you're saying, and it is kind of a lovely disassociation because it's not your responsibility. And it's going to sink or swim on its own. Mm -hmm. You talked about the process of getting a foreign deal. Are you comfortable with telling us about how that works out monetarily for the author? Yeah, absolutely. So usually with a foreign deal, they will pay you up front an advance of, I don't know, say $1,000 to $5,000, depending on how well they think it's going to do. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the last you're ever going to see of that. I had a couple exceptions. My French edition went bonkers, way, way more popular than in the U.S. And so I actually got a very nice deal, and I also sold through and got royalties for a couple of years from France. That was unexpected and incredibly wonderful. The other one that was a huge surprise was the Russian-Ukrainian edition, where I got, you know, some small amount up front, but then I actually got, you know, a few hundred dollars after that in royalties because they ended up selling 50,000 copies in Holy Russia crap. and the Ukraine. And this is when that all that invasion stuff was going on. So I thought, That's this right. is really weird. It's like they're, they're fighting by day and then they're going home and reading Pretty Girl 13. What is that all about? <laughs> that is really odd. You would not think of the Russian market being a great outlet. Oh, you but wouldn't. You, it you know, and you're probably getting a few pennies per copy, but it's still incredibly gratifying to know that that many people read those words. There's also a lot of piracy with the international scene. I discovered that my blog was getting a ton of hits through a certain website in Brazil. And I went to that website and it was basically a book piracy site where they had these beautiful pirated editions of hundreds of authors' books. Yeah, they were free PDF downloads of my book. But you got blog traffic. <laughs> got blog traffic, right. <laughs> I have two published books in Brazil right now. Madness and Female Species have both been published in Brazil. I've never actually looked or been alerted accidentally of any kind of foreign pirating. I know it's there. I can hardly control English pirating. So it's, it's frustrating. I don't agree with it. I think it's wrong. It robs me of money. But I don't feel like it's something I can actually stop. Right, right. So I just hope that the better angels of people's natures will persevere, yeah. which is probably naive. My first two books... The foreign rights actually belonged to HarperCollins. They went out and sold them, and I might know if they sold in a foreign country. I might not. I didn't have the rights, so I wasn't necessarily a part of the process. But I retained the foreign rights for my books after those two. Mm -hmm. That made a difference. I'm much more involved in the process. My agent is the one negotiating everything, and so she was like, this is the publishing company. This is what the offer is, yes or no. And I'm always like, yes. I mean, you know. Of course, yes. Say, you say no. yes. In Turkey, they've had such political upheaval. I actually went to auction in Turkey, if you can believe that. One of the publishing companies that bought it that won the auction then after their huge continuing political upheaval and economic collapse it went out of business the losing publishing company was still operating and then they offered to buy the rights then at their 
last offer. And so there were all these emails going back and forth between myself and my agent. And I'm like, yes, yes, do it, do it. That's fine. And then I'm like, dear God, it's so weird when you're reading the news and I'm reading about, you know, Erdogan and all the things that are going on in Turkey. And it immediately affects me. Right. It's so interesting to me when my book is out there in the world and some of the things that are happening out there in the world and they're actually affecting my life directly. I don't just mean financially. Like I'm thinking about these people that are protesting in the streets or, you know, being violently attacked. And I'm like, oh, my God, did that person read my book? It's right. like I feel a personal connection well, with that's people how that I have read about the Russia-Ukraine thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Very and it makes the world a lot smaller, I think. Yeah. I also had a Vietnamese contract. I'm not sure what their monetary unit is called, but because of the conversion rate being so bad, I think I got like $300 or something for that. And I'm like, no, just do it. I was like, that's fine. I'll take 300 bucks. <laughs> yeah, you do because it's so cool. This is this huge trust game because there's no way I can check up on my Chinese publishers. It went to auction in China. I had such a sweet editor. I was actually in touch with my Chinese editor for a while, but then he went and took another job. So the person who was the main cheerleader for my book went to another house before my book came out. So I'll probably never know how well it did. Yeah, that's the thing. You don't even know how it's right. sold. It's nice, but it's also frustrating because like, I would like to push my book in Romania. Like the Romanian cover of Not a Doctor Drink is really cool and I like it. I've that. mailed a lot of free swag to book bloggers in Czechoslovakia. Sorry, the Czech Republic. I have to. In the Czech Republic. I yeah. have to. They reach out. Mm -hmm. They reach out. <laughs> Finally, as a hybrid author, Liz knows the ins and outs of both the self-published and the traditional path. She shares the pros and cons of both, as well as the different skills required for each. I want to talk about self-publishing because mm -hmm. you've self-published a YA girl detective series, as well as your middle grade sci-fi, which you talked about earlier, The Captain's Kid. Tell us a little bit about Tormatics, and then tell us about the amount of work that goes into self-publishing in order to do it right, and the pros and the cons compared to the traditional route. Yeah, this is something that I actually get asked to speak about a lot, because I am a hybrid author with a foot in each camp. They happen pretty much simultaneously to my very first self-published novel, which I don't even really talk about very much, even though I love it, is called Out of Shibalba. It's a story about a girl who slips back in time to the time of the Mayan empire on the last day of the Mayan calendar, which is December 21st, 2012. And I had been trying and trying and trying to sell that story without any luck. And so as 2012 and the end of the world was drawing nigh, I thought, I'm going to learn how to self-publish because that's the only way this book is ever going to see the light of day. Mm -hmm. And the week after I self-published that, I got the deal with HarperCollins. So there you go, Murphy's Law. But I learned a lot in the process. The great things about self-publishing are that you basically have power steering. If you're a control freak, it's great because you have all of the editorial and artistic control that you want or can handle. You decide when the manuscript is perfect. You decide what you want the cover to look like. You decide what you want the blurbs to look like. All those decisions that publishing companies and editors either make for you or help you make, you are making pretty much on your own. So if you're an indecisive person, it is not a good choice. But if you like controlling things, and if, especially if you have any kind of creative artistic bent, that it's, it's really fun. The worst thing about it 
is that you have the needle meat haystack problem. You put your book out there, there's 11 million titles on Amazon. So how you make your book jump up and down and say, I'm here, I'm here, is really the toughest nut to crack. And, you know, I can talk about that some more. Um, and then the other worst thing about self-publishing is that you don't have access to bricks and mortar bookstores. You have basically only access to eBooks in all of their various platforms and then getting distributed through Amazon. Make of that what you will, but nobody's going to stumble across your book on a table at Barnes and Noble, unless you already have a particularly good relationship with Barnes and Noble and one particular store decided that they wanted to order it. Traditional publishing gets you that kind of access and distribution. You know, they can get Barnes and Noble to put your book on a table or in a prominent location where people are going to see it. And you have an entire team at your back, an entire marketing team, and they can do bigger things than you personally can do because they have a lot more dollars in hand. And also there's the credibility of saying such and such big publishing house is behind this book that gives it a boost. On the flip side, one of the worst things about traditional publishing is the time lag. You sign a contract for a book and two years later, it's on a shelf. With self-publishing, mm -hmm. if you can write fast, you can put out a book in 12 weeks from now. The immediate gratification is a nice, a nice aspect to self-publishing. Traditional publishing, a lot of things are out of your control. You may have some input to your cover, but likely you don't unless they've made a huge historical mistake or something on your cover. Otherwise, they've spent money hiring an artist to do something. And when they say, do you like your cover? You say, absolutely, I love it. That is the correct answer. And then the attention span is another difference. You know, with your self-published work, you can promote it as hard as you can, as long as you want. And in traditional publishing, most books, unless they're breakout hits, are only going to be promoted actively by the publisher for one season. So if your book is on the winter list, then they'll give it all they've got for the winter. But then they've got another whole slew of books coming out for the spring. Then their eyes are off you. There is a balance of the pros and cons. There's no doubt there about is. that. There is. If you can picture the genie in Aladdin, I sort of sum it all up as self-publishing is phenomenal cosmic powers, itty-bitty living space. I think for me, the biggest issue is, like you were saying, discoverability. I was part of an anthology with 13 other YA authors. They all had a paranormal bent to them. It was released, I think, last Halloween. It might have been a year before. And we had a USA Today bestselling author. We had a New York Times bestselling author. And then we had 11 other authors that supposedly, you know, the goal was everyone was bringing their own readership to this. We had a great cover. We did everything right. I think we made... $150. <laughs> yeah. Right. And and this was quality stuff. Mm -hmm. This was 13 short stories by 13 traditionally published authors with a theme and a grabby hook. All the things you're supposed to have. But we did as much advertising as we had the money for, and it didn't matter. Right. It just flopped. And part of that, I freely admit, is because it's an anthology, and that's a certain readership. But really cemented for me that I don't have the patience to do self-publishing because I really felt like we had done everything right and we had our dominoes in a row and it just fell on its face. And it was because of discoverability. Yeah. I mean, discoverability is a problem in both cases, whether you're traditionally published or self-publishing, but it's much harder with self-publishing. 
you can't get reviews generally with self-publishing. Book bloggers are not interested in reading something self-published because there are so many not ready for primetime books out there. You know, there's just not that trust factor that something self-published is going to be of the quality that's worth their time to review. And also their plates are full with things that they're getting from the big New York publishers. Well, I have trouble getting reviews for my fantasy. It only has, it's been out since April. It has like 23 reviews. And people sometimes I don't think realize that reviews help us in certain ways. They don't even have to look at the good review, bad review. That doesn't matter. It's the number of reviews. They're like, oh, people are reading this book and then they're talking about it. Whether they're saying something bad or something good, they were moved to take the time to leave a review. Just uh, that number on Amazon or Goodreads, when there's a review that says people are reading this and then responding, Mm -hmm. there's something there to react to. You can make pleas, you can go on review tours, but if somebody just reviews something on their blog that has 15 subscribers and then they, they don't put it on Goodreads or Amazon, it hasn't been that helpful. You said that you are asked to speak about this a lot. Are you speaking to writers groups? Are you speaking to classrooms? Where are you speaking? Generally to to writers groups, a couple of library presentations. I've been asked to do that. Generally, it is people who are writers who come to those kinds of sessions. Yeah. Because everyone's interested in shortcutting. Mm -hmm. Going traditional takes so long trying to find an agent, then waiting for an agent to find a publisher, and then getting a contract, and then waiting two years. There's all the rejection that people have to deal with along the way. When you interviewed Jody Casella, you guys talked about the rejection quite a bit. Some people want to jump past that point and put something out themselves. The advice that I got a really long time ago, and I think still holds, is that it's best to self-publish if you already have a direct route to your intended audience. I know someone who had two books of a trilogy published and then the the publisher said, well, we're not interested in publishing the third one, even though the story arc really wanted to have a third book. And that author had so many fans for books one and two that she said, well, I'm going to make sure that I have the rights and I'm going to go ahead and publish the third one myself. And in that case, it made sense because she knew exactly who was waiting to read the third one. Mm-hmm. She had a readership. She had a readership and she had an email list and a newsletter and a blog and all these ways of connecting with her readership. One of the biggest challenges I found in self-publishing middle grade is not having a direct route to those readers not been able to figure out how to crack that nut. Am I trying to talk to them? Am I trying to talk to their moms and have their moms buy this book? Or do I really just need to talk to librarians and hope that they'll start ordering more self-published books for their shelves? Yeah, that's a really good point. If you're writing middle grade or chapter books and you're self-publishing, you can't market online. Your readership is not there. There. Nope. Last thing, why don't you tell listeners where they can find you online? Okay. So my website is lizcoley.com, and Coley has one O and one L, L-I-Z-C-O-L-E-Y.com. And then elsewhere, I'm branded as Liz Coley Books on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. (laughs) 
Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash writer, writer, pants on fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. <laughs>